have your Bibles with you or your devices open, please, if you would, uh, turn to Ruth chapter 4 as, as this morning we're going to end our, our series in it. As you turn there, I have a question for you, and that is, when, what comes to mind when you hear the term impact player? Now, for most of us guys, probably we think immediately of sports, and it's true, it, it does apply in the sports arena, because there are impact players there that when they step out onto the athletic field or court, the game changes. Now, in collegiate or professional sports, there are athletes of just superb athletic talent, but impact players are a rare breed. For they not only have athletic skills that are just at the top, but they also bring some intangibles with them. They bring a mental toughness. They bring a heart that plays with enthusiasm and a passion. Uh, they have a drive that will not quit until there are all zeros on the scoreboard clock. So you can tell impact players because they play to win, they don't play not, or they play not to lose. They want to win. On and off the field, they are willing to pay a price that few others are willing to pay. And their passion, it is so contagious that literally it lifts the performance of their other teammates. So when an impact player enters a game, uh, the other team starts making adjustments. Uh, it changes their strategy on offense or defense. Everyone watches where are they on the field or where are they on the court. And often opposing coaches will choose to run plays away from these impact players. But impact players show up more than just in sports. They also show up in the marketplace. Jeffrey Fox describes them like this when he wrote, they are the ones that bring in customers. They energize the sales force. They restructure an underperforming department. They speed up the innovation process. They solve the late shipment problems. They impact players will do not just what is necessary, but they'll often jump in to do the noxious tasks that nobody else wants to do. So they'll get their hands dirty. They'll pick up a shovel and start shoveling. They'll open the store early. They will stay late. They'll deliver, make a delivery on their way home. They'll deal tirelessly with irate customers. They'll even make a service call on Christmas Eve. So here's a question for you. Would that term, impact player, ever be used by others to describe you? Now, immediately you might think, me? Oh, Rick, <laughs> you've got to be kidding. Me? I'm no one special. I, I, I live a small life of just little importance. I have no platform. I have no significant accomplishments to my name. No one's watching me. Very few even listen to me. And if you only knew my past and where I've come from and what I've done, well... Yet God has his impact players. And they may not be defined the way our world defines them in a sports or a business context, but they are game changers, and the effect that they have is powerful. Some are men, some are women. They come from every social strata imaginable. 
Some have great educations and some have had little schooling. And their age spans the spectrum from teenagers all the way up to senior saints. And the impact that they leave is not measured by the inconsequential things like scoreboard scores or championship rings or profit margins, but rather their story deeply changes history. And here's the incredible irony about God's impact players. Most of them did not realize the difference they were making at the time. So how do we know for sure that God uses normal, plain, ordinary people going about their routines of life in the, uh, that, to make a dramatic impact on history? Well, the book of Ruth, in the way it concludes, answers that question. So as we jump back into the story one last time, and we come to these final verses, the author begins to pull together a bunch of loose strings that have been hanging out there for a little bit. From verse 13 to the first part of verse 17 in chapter 4, we can see the satisfying conclusion. Now, we didn't have a video for today, so let's just read it together. Follow along. Ruth chapter 4, starting at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel, and he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So how satisfying is the conclusion? Well, think about how satisfying it is for Ruth. She now ends up with a loving, godly husband and the stability of being in a home. Now remember, it wasn't too long ago that she was dumpster diving. Now she is dancing as a bride. Not too long ago, she was on her hands and knees gleaning, and now she's standing by the table changing diapers. It's a satisfying conclusion for her. But it's also a satisfying conclusion for Naomi. She gets a grandson who will continue the family name and the family line. Her heritage is assured. She who struggled with bitterness is now feeling incredibly blessed. And deep wounds inside of her are slowly being healed. And it's a satisfying conclusion for Boaz. I mean, after all, he gets a young godly wife. His reputation in the community has just skyrocketed as people honor him and respect him for the gracious and compassionate way he allowed his settled life to be completely turned upside down as he stepped up to be a kinsman redeemer. And so as the book of Ruth comes to a close, Naomi, we see her, she's rocking baby Obed. Everyone has a warm and wonderful glow about the way things have worked out. And as we read this final scene in the story, our response is typically, ah. And yet God wants our response to be, whoa. You see, most of us casually miss the last five verses. Because what are the last five verses? 
They're a genealogy. And what is our typical evangelical Christian response to a genealogy? Skip it. Let's move on to the good stuff. And yet, and yet, if we do that, we will miss the whole point of why the book of Ruth was written for us. Because these individuals are game changers. They are impact players. And the reason this book ends with the genealogy is to establish the astonishing repercussion. See, this genealogy reminds us that each of our lives, like the lives of of these in this book, are like a stone being thrown into a pond. As the stone hits the surface of the water, it creates ripples that move out across the surface, literally rocking everything on the top of the pond. So there is something here we cannot afford to miss. Look at verse 18 to verse 22. Where do we find the name Boaz? Well, if you kind of look in there, you see it's kind of stuck in there in the middle of between all of those names. Why is it in the middle? The writer wants us to know that something important has gone before this story as well as something powerful happens after this story. Let's unpack both of those. First, the genealogy points us backwards. Look at verse 17. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Abinadab. By the way, a little side note here. If you're ever asked to publicly read in the Old Testament and you have a list of names and you're not sure how to pronounce them, don't let it bother you. Just be bold, strong, do it, because no one knows el- no one else knows how to, how to uh, pronounce them either. Okay? So just go for it. So what do we have here? So we're down to Abinadab. Abinadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Okay? Where did it start? Boaz is in the line of Perez. So, well, Perez was a son of Judah, and Judah was the father of one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. But the family line of Perez was founded in scandal. You can go home this afternoon and, and, and look up Genesis chapter 38 for all the details, but in short, here is what was going on. Judah's Judah's oldest son was a man by the name of Ur, and Ur married a woman by the name of Tamar. But after marrying her, he dies. So, as is typical in that day, Judah's next youngest son then is supposed to take Tamar, which he does. He does marry her, but he doesn't want to raise up a son for his older brother, so he dies. Judah then decides, I'm not going to give my third son to Tamar out of fear that he's going to die. I mean, this woman's bad luck. So what's happening? Judah is refusing to act like a kinsman redeemer. So you know the story. Tamar then disguises herself as a prostitute, entices Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her. She becomes pregnant, and she has a son. And yes, that son's name is Perez. That's where this genealogy begins. So what does that tell us? It tells us something very, very important. It tells us that this is not exactly the kind of memories that get told at family reunions. 
but it is public knowledge. It is, it is public knowledge that this is Boaz's scandalous heritage. So hang on to that for just a moment, because there's more going on here. Hold your finger here in Ruth chapter 4 and turn, if you would, to the very first page of the New Testament to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, we have another genealogy. A genealogy, again, we tend to just skip over. But there's some powerful things going on in this genealogy. One that we need to look at for a moment. Start in verse 3 with me in Matthew chapter 1. And we begin to read something that sounds like it came out of Ruth 4. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, did you notice a couple things? And you should always notice when there's something unusual going on, and that is in biblical genealogies, rarely does a woman's name show up, but it does here. What's the woman's name next to Boaz? His mother's name was Rahab. Okay, who's that? Well, she was the woman who lived in Jericho, and when Israel came to conquer the land and they sent some spies into Jericho to check it out, they were discovered, and so she protected them by hiding them. What was her occupation? Well, she was a prostitute. Okay, you start to see some reoccurring theme going on here in Boaz's background. So after the city of Jericho falls, Boaz's dad evidently marries her. Okay, why are we given this kind of information? Because think of the way it would have shaped Boaz. First way it would have shaped him. He would, have, he would know that in his family history, Judah, the father of their tribe, is a man who would always be remembered for not being willing to take on the role of being a kinsman redeemer and raising up a son for the family line. He was forced to do it. Second way this would have shaped Boaz, he would totally understand the feelings of a foreigner trying to fit into the community of Israel because his mother was not Jewish. But she had a strong faith, a strong belief in God, so much so that Boaz's dad marries her. Third way this would have shaped him. Prostitution is a reoccurring theme in his heritage. Shameful? Embarrassing? So Boaz... Boaz would have every reason in the world to feel limited by his past, limited by his heritage. And yet, what do we see in this man's life? He is so determined not to repeat what his forefathers have done. He is also impressed by the faith of Ruth, who, like his own mother, was a foreigner in Israel. Like father, like son. And it's our potential for being an impact player for God that starts right here. Are we letting our past 
Maybe even the distant past of our extended family hold us back. Or could it be that God is calling you this morning to stand up and by an act of faith break a generational sin that will send redemptive ripples into the coming generations? Could it be that those embarrassing family issues that are rarely ever talked about are tender wounds in your heart that now has given you a sensitivity to come alongside other hurting people because you can definitely identify with their pain? Yeah, this genealogy points, us, points all of us back. But it does more than just have us do a background check on Boaz. The genealogy also points us forward. Look at verse 21 in Ruth 4. Again, Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So here we've got the quiet faithfulness of these people that we've been looking at for these three, four weeks. That's the background to King David. They're willing to trust God and risk obedience, and the ripples of that produced a man who would bring revival and prominence as he became the poet warrior king of Israel. But that's not where it stops. Because as we saw in Matthew 1, their faithfulness was the background to Jesus Christ. That genealogy that we looked at, just for a quick second, if you want to keep reading all the way through it, shows that the obedient, God-trusting choices of these average people, back here in this small little book in the Old Testament, as they were going about the routines of life, blended them into God's larger story that then brought us the King of Kings. Folks, what does that tell us? It tells us and shows us that God has astonishing plans for average people to make their lives uncommon. Again, one more time, let's consider the eclectic mix of people we've been studying. We've got Ruth, an outsider, a recent believer. Most of the time, she is clueless about what's really going on, but she's faithful, she's brave to obey what little bit she knows. Then we've got Naomi, an older widow, battling her fears and her bitternesses. She's destitute at the start of this story, and, but in her spiritual wrestling with God, she's also determined. And then we've got Boaz, the confirmed bachelor, with a less than dignified background and heritage. Yes, he's got money, but what he's got even more than that is a motivation to please the Lord. So the book of Ruth reminds us that God wants to blend our little small story up into his larger one. And not only does he want to show us grace and mercy into our lives now, but he has plans that when he does that will span generations. And so he invites us to believe that the ripples of our lives that we create can be a part of those plans when we're willing to trust him and obey him even in just little things. Back in 1963, Edward Lawrence proposed a theory to the New York Academy of Science 
that the, that the, the flapping of a butterfly wings in Brazil could cause then a hurricane on the other side of the world. Initially, his theory was laughed at by his colleagues, but today it's accepted, and it's called the butterfly effect. That states that an initial small movement of molecules or a relatively minor choice by a person can set in motion a series of events that have enormous impact or ripples. Case in point. Moses and Susan Carver were German immigrants here in America, living in Diamond, Missouri, when in 1865, Quantrill's raiders came through, burning their barn, shooting and killing some people, and kidnapping Mary, their friend, and her infant daughter, infant son, George. Well, Moses immediately passed word through neighbors and into the neighboring villages um, and set up a, me- a meeting in the middle of the night with the raiders. He brought his only horse, and he exchanged it for the infant boy, George, because Mary had since died. Moses and Susan raised George as if he was their own son and gave him the name George Washington Carver. When Carver was 19 years old and attending um, Iowa State University, his his dairy sciences professor had a little six-year-old boy Um, who was allowed on weekends to go out with George while he went on his botanical expeditions. Carver gave that little six-year-old boy a love for plants and a vision for what they could do for humanity. And of course, we know George Washington Carver gave us 266 uses for the peanut and over 88 things that we get to enjoy from sweet potatoes. But that little boy, Henry Wallace, grew up and became the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. He also served one term as a vice president under Franklin Roosevelt. But during his term, he hired a young man by the name of Norman Borlaug to set up a station in Mexico, and the sole purpose was to develop some hybrid seed and corn and wheat that would grow in arid conditions. Well, Norman's work succeeded beyond anybody's wildest imagination, and so his hybridized, high-yield, disease-resistant corn and wheat is even used yet today in the Dust Bowl of West Africa, in our own Southwest, in Central and South America. Even in the plains of Siberia, it's used. And that specific seed flourishes, thrives, and regenerates where no seed has ever been able to do that before. And so through the years, it's been estimated that Norman Borlaug's work has saved over 2 billion people from famine and starvation. And all because of the compassionate act of an ordinary farmer four generations earlier. There in Diamond, Missouri, it started. Moses... George, Henry, Norman. And how many lives have been saved by the compassionate act of an ordinary farmer in Bethlehem? Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Jesus Christ. God's got astonishing plans for average people, that their lives are uncommon. 
And so as we close our study in the book of Ruth this morning, I'd like for us to consider how the impact of the story is not for its entertainment value, but for its transforming value. That Ruth was given to us to dramatically change the way that we view our own journey. I mean, who can fathom what God is up to? How surprising the eternal impact of our quiet expressions of faith. We may never know, but it's happening. For the measurement of faith is is not so much about my adherence to a strict doctrinal statement as much as it is about my deep trust in God's heart as it's then revealed in my behavior. So I'd like to allow our study as it concludes this morning to guide us in asking four final questions. Question number one, how has this biblical story changed my view of my smaller story? Anybody here enjoy uh, J.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, uh, like I do? (laughs) Um, I think I've probably read those three books at least a dozen times in my life, and I own the the three DVD set as, as well, because I just love it so much. If you may remember, halfway through their journey, following a great deal of hardship and about to, ready to face even a bunch more, Frodo's beloved friend and servant, Sam Gamgee, wonders out loud. He says, what sort of story have we fallen into? So do I believe and trust my Heavenly Father is actively involved in my smaller story? Or am I being sucked into this world's thinking that life is really just random and just a coincidence? Or am I alert, looking for His quiet grace moving in all the details of my journey? Do I believe and trust that he wants to blend my smaller story up into his larger story? Even when I can't see it, even when I can't explain it, do I trust that something good and beautiful is unfolding? You know, is my trust like the observation made about Jesus in Mark chapter 7, verse 37, where someone said, He has done all things well. Is this little story changing the view of my small story? Good question to ask. Here's a second one. How has this biblical story changed my view of the unique setting of my story? In other words, do I believe and trust that God has personally built the scene that I am currently living in? That my life here in the Brainerd Lakes area, in going to work or being in school uh, with the ages of my children, uh, maybe I'm retired, maybe I'm unemployed or underemployed, my health challenges, being single, being married, on and on and on. Does my faith accept that all those details are a part of God's sovereign orchestration? And in my unique setting, Am I responding in faith to the blessed times as well as the brutal times? Where does my faith show itself when I'm confused or when I have clarity? 
How is my faith being seen in those times when I say, why, Lord? Or when I say, wow, Lord? Has it changed my view of my smaller story? Third question. How has this biblical story changed my view of the characters in my story? In other words, do I believe and trust that God has placed the various people around me with design in order for me to interact with them? And therefore, am I in faith responding to the needs I see in others around me, giving them extravagant expressions of grace, nudging them in, in, in faith? Am I willing to have my life turned upside down because my radical obedience to the gospel as it relates to my relationships? Am I commending others when I see them faithfully obeying the Lord? Let me give you a fourth question to ask. How has this biblical story changed my view about the plot line of my story. In other words, do I believe and trust that the drama of my life is going somewhere with purpose and with intention? Am I aware that there is an author in heaven of my story who wants me to enter into the adventure with him, but let him lead it? <laughs> Am I responding by faith, even in the little details of my life, and I'm being faithful in my daily routines, because even though I may not be able to explain it or see it, it does matter. And do I believe that God is not limited by what limits me, but He can supernaturally change my circumstances overnight, if necessary, and change my heart and change the heart of other people? One of the contemporary Christian songwriters and singers is a woman by the name of Laura Story. She's given us such great songs like Mighty to Save, Indescribable, Blessings. But one of her lesser-known songs is called God of Every Story. Listen to just a few of her lyrics. Amy, she lives down the street, and her husband left her just last week. She feels like giving up, but she's holding on to hope. John lost his job six months ago. He's got a wife and three kids at home. Doesn't know what to do, but he's praying for a breakthrough. Some want to raise a fist up high, blame all the hard things on the Father in the sky, but he hears when we call. We can trust him through it all, for he's the God of every story. He sees each tear that falls. We may not understand, but one thing is certain. He is faithful. He's a faithful God. Let's pray. And with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to do something that you might feel a little uncomfortable with. That's okay. Go with me on it. I want you to take your hands and I want you to open them up with your palms towards heaven and just lay them in your lap as a physical act of openness to the Lord and pray along with me. Lord, would you take my common routine life and make it uncommon 
for you. Lord, may my life make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. And would you change my view of my smaller story? Would you change my view of the setting of my story, of the characters in my story, change my view of the plot line of my story? For Father, I confess, there are many days when I want it different. But I want to accept it as from your hand. Believing that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. But even if I don't, that you want to in unusual ways use my quiet, faithful obedience to cause ripples that will cause an impact for generations. Father, give me that kind of faith. Give us that kind of faith to believe in the mighty hand of our God at work in our lives. So, Father, this is our prayer. And, Father, would you do it in honor for the honor and the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.